you will be hated by all because of me. But not a hair in your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your souls. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. A modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree they will not kill each other. The Mennonite Central Committee came up with this slogan decades ago, and they started printing the words on posters. I think we have a picture of what the poster looks like. My former professor, Stanley Harawas, was uh, sort of enraptured by this sentiment, and he liked the poster so much he put it on his door in his office more than 20 years ago. He loved the sentiment behind it, but not only that, he hung it up because Dr. Harawas likes to stir up controversy whenever possible. Because for the last 20 years, countless students and professors have knocked on his door with anger and frustration. Each of them in their own way have said to him, Your sign makes me so mad. Christians shouldn't kill anyone. Your sign makes me so mad. Christians shouldn't kill anyone. And Dr. Harris would reply the same way every time. The Mennonites called it a modest proposal. We've got to start somewhere. Because we haven't been doing a very good job. A modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree they will not kill each other. The disciples, the twelve, are walking with Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. They're like a bunch of tourists with their eyes in the sky. They're taking in the beauty of the temple, the large stones, the gifts dedicated to God. And Jesus says to them, check this out. The days are coming when not one of these stones will be left upon another. And of course, the ragtag group of would-be followers of Jesus, they follow his proclamation with their own question. How will we know this is taking place? What signs should we look for? What signs should we look for? It's easy to knock the hard-headed disciples for their hard-headedness. You know, they've had three years to hear and see and witness Jesus day after day, and they still can't get it through their thick skulls what he's all about. And frankly, we're no better. We're always looking for signs, all the time. Signs that will clue us in that we might catch a peek behind the curtain of the cosmos. It's the, the ever-enduring next thing that we keep our eyes on. Demands our attention and allegiance. The next politician, the next prophet, the next program, dare I say, the next pastor. We hope that one day, the next big thing will finally arrive. It will set things right, it will get it right. And we, we pour our hope and our trust into these fleeting and flawed figures, and, and they disappoint us over and over again. And worse, they lead us astray. And to make it even worse than that, Jesus told us this is exactly what would happen. Many will come in my name, Jesus says. They will lead you astray. They will lead you away from the kingdom of God. They will tell you the end is near. Don't listen to them. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence and terror and great signs and portents from heaven. Now, we're Methodists. We're not used to this kind of language in church on Sunday. This is the kind of stuff for those left-behind churches. But well, we need to leave left-behind behind, you know? But we're Methodists. We, we, we're not used to this kind of language about the end. We come to church because we want to hear about love and kindness and joy peace. 
We see these kinds of things on the television every night. We see it on Facebook and Twitter. We, we see that the world is being flushed down the toilet. But in church, we don't want to think about those things. We don't want to have to talk about those things. We're, we're used to hearing about the comfort of the present. We don't want to hear about the terror of the future. But Jesus, when asked about the future, about the possibilities for the days ahead, was upfront about the end, he said, stones are going to be thrown down. Wars are going to be waged. Famines and plagues and worse. Oh, my. It's right there in the Bible. It's on our televisions every night. It's on Twitter when we're doom scrolling late into the evening. And we can't stop watching. We can't stop watching. When was the last time you turned on the news at night and you saw good news? We can't look away. Paul Zimmer was 19 years old when the U.S. Army sent him to Camp Desert Rock. It was 1955. He was 19 years old, and the U.S. Army asked him to do something he was totally unprepared for, and he wrote about his experience, and I'm going to use his words. He was 19. He said, I had seen pictures of Hiroshima. I knew it was bad, but I thought that getting to watch atomic blasts would be kind of cool, be a story that could interest girls. I had no special training, and the first time I saw a bomb explode, I did not know what to expect. We traveled by night into the desert, chain-smoking until we were ordered into the trenches. We wore steel hel helmets and our fatigues, but nothing else. No eye protection, no ear protection. I did not become fearful until the countdown was broadcast. I only became terrified when I saw the flash, a flash that was so bright that even with my eyes closed, I could see the bones of my hands over my eyes. The shockwave crashed over us. We were ordered out of the trenches. We saw the mushroom cloud glowing purple and changing colors, rising and rising higher and higher. I saw eight atomic blasts in total, some from the air, some from underground. Some created such massive shock waves that we were buried in our trenches and we had to claw our way out from our own graves. Every time when the clearance was radioed over, we were ordered to march forward into the blast area and bear witness. As far as I could tell, bearing witness was the only reason we were there. Every time, ozone hung in the air. Maimed animals in every direction. Houses were splintered and scattered. Total devastation. We never had to write any reports. Nor did anyone ask us what we saw. Because it turns out, they were watching us. They wanted to see how young men reacted to an atomic blast. Lately, I have begun to realize I am one of the last living people in America to have actually experienced close-up explosions of atomic bombs. Now, in my old age, when I can conjure that brief and surreal period of my youth, I try in vain to make sense of it all. It has become my responsibility to share how that great flash and blast permanently reached into my young mind and heart, how the sounds still ring in my ears even all these years later. I feel it my duty to tell of the reckless absurdity of it all. You know, we keep threatening to use these weapons, and I'm sure that one day we will. Most of us have forgotten what we are capable of. I have not. Just as the explosion was seared into Paul's Zimmer, his mind, I heard this story on the radio five years ago, and I've never forgotten it. It has stayed permanently with me in my heart and in my soul. To have experienced what he did, 
is akin to what we do every night when we turn on the news. Nothing but bad news. It is so easy, all too easy, to feel like the end is here. And yet, the end isn't near. It's right here. That's the Christian proclamation. Our faith is built on the notion that we have already seen the end. Because in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything has changed. Talk about looking for a sign. The only sign we need to see is the cross. Because on the cross, we believe that the entirety of the history of the cosmos came to a turning point. At that moment, as the sky turned black, as the temple curtain torn to as he was nailed to the cross, the conflict between life and death and good and evil, it was resolved in favor of Jesus' lordship over everything forever. We know the end because we know Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've read the last chapter before the introduction. We've heard the postlude before the anthem. There's a new kingdom that's already been established by God, and it's not dependent on us getting anything solved or us getting the next right person elected or us finally making the world a better place. Do you know what the mission of the church is? Our denomination says that the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, and I think it's fine. It looks good on a banner, short and sweet and to the point, except it betrays the central claim of the gospel. God has already transformed the world in Jesus. The kingdom that we live in now is based not on what we are doing, but what God has already done and is doing through us. We actually don't have a mission. We are the mission. Our being is based on the presumption that we are witnesses first and foremost to Jesus, who is the difference that makes the difference. We bear the marks of his life in our lives, which changes how we behave around others. Jesus has already made us different. We don't exist to make changes in the world, but living in the world made possible by the cross will lead to transformation. We can't help ourselves but be different because of Jesus. It will lead to transformation because we embody the joy that comes with knowing Jesus. It will lead to transformation because we are the kind of people who can't rest easy when the world is being flushed down the toilet. It leads to transformation because we know the truth. His name is Jesus. And we know that real peace comes not through violence, but through weakness. But Paul Zimmer was told to bear witness to the power of our self-made destruction. We spend our days and most of our nights watching the brokenness of the world around us. And yet more often than not, we dare not question why things are the way they are. I find that odd. I mean, Jesus says, we will be hated because of him. Now, I don't know about you. But I don't think I've ever been hated because of Jesus. I don't think anyone has ever hated me because I follow Jesus. But I assure you, the world will hate me and the world will hate you if we call into question the powers and the principalities of this life. To question our wanton disregard of the environment or obsession with weapons of mass destruction or a never-ending political industrial complex. If we ask questions about those things, people will hate us. I promise you. But perhaps to bring it a little closer to home, Thanksgiving's coming, that hallowed opportunity to gather around the table with friends and family and foe alike. Imagine, if you can, you're at the Thanksgiving table, you're up to your elbows in mashed potatoes, and you look out in a still small silence and you say, is now the time to bring up our nuclear arsenal? You might not be hated for bringing it up. You might not be invited back next year. And yet to ask a question like that one, would at the very least be faithful. 
The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is love is such that even though we will be hated, we will carry through this life by his love. That even in distress, we can trust. Even in times of fear, we can rejoice because Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm not immune. I like to doom scroll. I like to watch the news. I was watching the news a couple weeks ago and I saw a young woman who was waxing lyrical. She said, I have no hope for the future. She went on to describe this lack of hope. She said, every time we elect a politician, they promise to do something and they never do it. She said, we spend too much money on our military all while kids go to bed hungry at night. We're willfully ignoring the devastation we're wreaking in the environment. She had a laundry list of all the reasons she didn't have hope in the future. And I thought, no wonder she doesn't have any hope. The only hope she could imagine was inside of her and inside of us that we could make things right. Let me tell you, we are hopeless. We are up the creek without it. We don't even have a whole, we don't even have a boat. We are in so much trouble. For far longer than we've cared to admit, we know exactly what we should do and exactly what we shouldn't do, and we don't do it. We are in so much trouble. We have no hope. Have you seen the world? We're not doing a very good job. We have no hope unless the hope of the world comes to dwell with us. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus says we will be hated because of him. I don't know if our lives are such that people hate us because of Jesus. But Jesus says that we can be hated because of him and yet we can rejoice because in those moments we'll be given opportunities to testify, to bear witness. Bearing witness is just living according to the new world made by Jesus which is why the old hymn is right and true. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on his name, because he is the solid rock upon which we stand. Wars and rumors of wars will come. Churches will be built and they will crumble. Families will grow and they will fall apart. And even though the world will change, we can hold fast to the truth. We can even dare to tell the truth because we know how the story ends. When Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may we then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ is the only solid rock upon which we stand. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.